The following lecture was delivered at the 8th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yossi Nu is Regional Director of Chabad of Georgia. He oversees the outreach activities of the 13 centers in the state and is the founder and spiritual leader of Congregation Beth Tefillah in Atlanta, Georgia. Rabbi Nu is a senior member of the Southeastern Region Beit Din and Kashrut Commission and is known as a charismatic orator who bridges the gap between the rabbinate and the wider world. He will now present a lecture entitled, The Chosen People, Who Chose Whom? You all, I believe, know the story that God offered the Torah to all the existing nations at the time, and they all rejected it. For one reason or another, he first presented the Torah to the Ishmaelites, and of course they asked God, well, what's in it? And God informed them that in it is the uh, commandment to not uh, commit adultery. And they said, forget it, we couldn't live by a code that enforced that, so we're not interested. And then he went to the Edomites and offered them the Torah. And they asked, what's in it? And God said, included in it is the law that you shall not murder, not murder. We can't abide by that, no thank you. And then finally, God presents the opportunity to the Jewish people to receive the Torah and without even asking what's in it, they famously responded and declared, Na'aseh v'nishma, we will do and we will hear. Parenthetically, the question is asked, if the Jewish people would have asked God, what's in it? Which mitzvah would he have presented to them that they would have found most challenging? Because obviously to the other nations, to the Ishmaelites and the Edomites and all the other nations, when they asked God what's in it, he mentioned and selected the mitzvah that he knew would be most challenging to them, and therefore they rejected it. Which mitzvah would be most challenging to the Jewish people? And I read what I consider a very insightful answer, and that is the mitzvah to believe in God. That is what's most challenging for the Jewish people, and think about it historically. All the most famous atheists and agnostics and the whole notion that you can be Jewish without believing in God. I doubt that many people would proclaim themselves to be a practicing Catholic and not believing in God, or a practicing Muslim and not believing in God. But a Jew, and this has happened to me before, someone comes to my office to discuss theology and informs me that Rabbi, I don't believe in God. And I look at my watch, and it's mincha time. And I tell him, that's really interesting. But right now, we need you to help with a minion. And after mincha, we can talk about theology, whether you believe in God or not. So this concept of a Jew is unique. And it appears 
that from this Midrash, that it was the Jewish people who chose God. Yet, and if you have your source sheet, if you look at source one, a famous quote from the Talmud in Tractate Shabbat, quoting the verse, and they stood under the mountain. Rabbi Avdimi Barchama Barchasa said, This teaches us that the Holy One, blessed be He, overturned the mountain upon them like an inverted cask and said to them, If you accept the Torah, it is well. If not, this place shall be your burial. Rabbi Acha Yaakov observed, this furnishes a strong protest against the Torah. Rashi, it provides an excuse for non-observance since it was forcibly imposed in the first place. You and I all know if you sign a contract under duress at gunpoint, that contract would not be a valid one and the one who signed it would not be obligated to fulfill its terms. And so although you have this wonderful midrash that the Jewish people accepted the Torah when God offered it to them, from this Talmud it clearly seems that it was under duress. They were forced to receive it. And therefore, legally, as Rabbi Acha Yaakov expresses, we, the Jewish people, should not be bound by Torah law. It wasn't a free choice. Somewhat akin, they tell the story that when Jewish husbands come to heaven after 120 years, they find two lines and they have to choose which line to stand in. There is a sign at the front of one line for husbands that obeyed, or Jewish husbands that obeyed their wives. And then the other line, there's a sign for Jewish husbands who didn't, who disobeyed their wives. And after 120 years, Yankel shows up in heaven and has to make this choice. And he notices that the line for the husbands who obeyed their wives is snaking around and around. It's never-ending. And the line for husbands who did not obey their wives, there's one man standing there. One man. And so he approaches and says, excuse me, sir. Why are you standing in this line when everybody else is in the other line? He says, I don't know, my wife told me to stand here. <laughs> and it seems that the choice that the Jewish people made to receive the Torah was one that was forced upon them, that they didn't really make. And so what would be the significance of a choice that was coerced? That was forced upon you. And the truth is that the choice doesn't bind us 
as individuals. It's a choice that binds God to the Jewish people. And I'd now like to draw your attention to um, source number two and three. Twice a year, we read what is called the Tochacha, when God admonishes the Jewish people. We'll read it in two weeks from now, in Parshat Kitavo, just before Rosh Hashanah, the new year. And we read it in Parshat Bechukotai, just before Shavuot. So once in the book of Leviticus, and once in the book of Deuteronomy. And if you're familiar with it, it is a harrowing description of what will befall the Jewish people for failure to obey the word of God. When you read the descriptions, it clearly describes and reminds you of the Holocaust and other atrocities that the Jewish people have suffered through. Just to highlight a couple of the verses from Leviticus. But if you do not listen to me and do not perform all these commandments, I'll go to verse 16. Then I too will do the same to you. I will order upon you shock, consumption, fever, and diseases that causes hopeless longing and depression. You will sow your seed in vain and your enemies will eat you. But then it continues and ends with a message of hope. But despite all this, while they are in the land of their enemies, I will not despise them, nor will I reject them to annihilate them, thereby breaking my covenant that is with them. For I am the Lord your God. I will remember for them the covenant made with the ancestors who I took out from the land of Egypt. So although, and I've, this is a very brief a description, as you can see, is from verse 1 through verse 44, a very long and lengthy description of all the suffering of the Jewish people. It ends with a message of hope. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Now let's contrast that with source 3 from Deuteronomy, which we will read in a couple of weeks. And again, and it will be if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to fulfill all his commandments and statutes which I am commanding you this day, and it continues, as you can see, verse 18, cursed will be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your soil, the fruit of your livestock, and it continues on ver in verse 67, in the morning you will say, if only it were the evening, in the evening if it was only in the morning because of the fear in your heart. And let's go to verse 68 and 69, which concludes this description. And the Lord will bring you back in Egypt and ships through the ways about which I had said to you. You will never see it again. And there you will seek to be sold to your enemies for slaves and handmaids. But there will be no buyer. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab. Besides the covenant which he made with them in Choreb. No light at the end of this tunnel. No message of hope at its conclusion. A striking contrast. In Leviticus, it ends with a message of hope. Here in Deuteronomy, with a thud. What's the difference? So you know that movie, Lost in Translation? So very often, English loses 
the subtleties of the original Hebrew. And so I'd like to draw your attention back to source two. For those of you that read Hebrew, and of course I'll translate it, you look at the first verse, verse 14, or you, you dullard, it says, im lo tishma'uli, which translates, but if you do not listen to me. But the word tishma'u is plural. Contrast that to source 3 from Deuteronomy, verse 15, or tetvav in the Hebrew, and there it says, v'haya imlo tishma. In the English it translates almost identically, but the word tishma is in the singular. And throughout the entire text, in Leviticus, it's recorded in the plural. And in Deuteronomy, it's recorded in the singular. The choice that God made was that the Jewish people would always exist. And therefore, in Leviticus, which is recorded in the plural, addressing the Jewish people as a whole, despite all the suffering, despite the desire and the efforts of our enemies to destroy us and to annihilate us, we will always exist. We will always re-emerge. And that is why the Jewish people is compared to the moon, that even after it wanes and seems that it will disappear forever, it always re-emerges. And so too, the Jewish people, as a nation, God guarantees, will always exist. But in Deuteronomy, which addresses the individual and is written in the singular, there is no guarantee. Whether you and I and our progeny will be part of the destiny and the history of the Jewish people, that God does not guarantee. That is up to us. And that is why you'll also find something remarkable. If you to ask any informed Jew, why did God choose Abraham to be the founding patriarch of the Jewish people? And most often they'll respond because how great he was. I think it was mentioned last night at the banquet that as a young child, he smashed the idols of his father. The Talmud informs us that in a world of idolaters, he identified and recognized God at the tender age of three. Remarkable accomplishments, deserving of being handpicked by God to be the founding patriarch of the Jewish people. Well, let's see from the text itself how and why God chose him. Please go to source number five. And I'll read through it quickly. And these are the generations of Terach. Terach begot Abraham, Nachor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. And Haran died during the lifetime of Terach, his father, in the land of the birth in Ur of, of Chaldees. 
And Abraham and Nachor took themselves wives. The names of Abraham's wife were Sarai, and the name of Nachor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Yiska. And Sarah was barren. She had no child. And then Terach took Abraham, his son, and Lot's son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, and the wife of Abraham and his son. And they went forth with them from Ur of Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And these are the days of Terach 205, and Terach died in Haran. Folks, what do we know about Abraham so far? Very, very generic information. He had a father. He had a wife. He had a wife who had fertility problems. Absolutely nothing about his piety or his greatness. But then it continues. And the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your land and from your birthplace and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and so on. Why wouldn't the Torah share this pertinent information that the Talmud does? Wouldn't it be important to know that? That he smashed his father's idols? That he recognized God in a world of idolatry? And that is why God chose him? Because he was a tzaddik? Because he was a righteous person? That's why God chose Noah. Why did God chose Noah? To rebuild civilization. You know why? The Torah tells you. Because, and you can see it here in uh, source number four, Noah was a righteous man. He was perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And therefore, God chose him. To use a sports analogy, he was the number one draft pick. Avraham, however, who we do have information of from Talmudic and Midrashic rabbinic sources, yet the Torah itself, the primary source, deems it irrelevant. Because the choosing of Abraham was initiated by God. It is God's commitment that the Jewish people will always exist, no matter what. And therefore, Abraham's piety, as pious as he was, as great as he was, as righteous as he was, was irrelevant to the choice that God made that he would be the founding patriarch of B'nai Yisrael, of the Jewish people. Because that the Jewish people will exist is guaranteed... You know the George Zimmer, I guarantee it. That's the guarantee that God made for the existence of the Jewish people as a whole. That also explains something very interesting. As I mentioned, we read this tochacha, the admonishments of the Jewish people, twice a year. Once before Rosh Hashanah, and once before Shavuot. Now contrast Shavuot with Rosh Hashanah, or for that matter, any other Jewish holiday. Every other Jewish holiday has a ritual, a mitzvah, 
a unique mitzvah associated with it. On Rosh Hashanah, we'll blow the shofar, Yom Kippur, the day of fasting and atonement, Sukkot, the lulav, the etrog, the sukkah, Pesach, the matzah. On Shavuot, there is no special mitzvah. There is no special ritual associated with the holiday. In fact, in rabbinic literature, the holiday is called atzeret. The word atzeret means stop. In Israel today, if you go, if you're driving a car and you come to a stop sign, the word on the red sign is atzor, because atzor means stop. And so the theme of Shavuos is stop, take the day off. But there's no special mitzvah. The only other, by the way, Jewish holiday is Shmini Atzeret. And that's why it's also called Atzeret, because there's no special mitzvah. Biblically, rabbinically, we have Simchat Torah, but biblically, there is no special mitzvah. It's also a day off for a different reason. But on Shavuot, the day that the Jewish people received the Torah, arguably the most significant Jewish holiday, and yet, there's no special mitzvah. And I would argue, that's probably the reason why it's the least observed Jewish holiday. Think about it. The most observed Jewish holiday? Pesach. You know why? Because it's the most difficult. And it has the most laws and customs and rituals associated with it. And yet the holiday that you could argue is the source of all the other holidays. It's the day that we received the Torah, the, the revelation. But because there's no special mitzvah associated with it, it's unfortunately not as popular. But why? Why is it a holiday that is so significant, that is so important, and yet it has no special mitzvah? No special ritual. And it is because Shavuos is the day that God unconditionally commits himself to the Jewish people. Shavuos represents not our commitment to God, but rather God's commitment to us. And therefore, nothing, in a sense, is required of us other than to be there and to show up. But we on Shavuos do not display or demonstrate our allegiance and commitment to God, but rather it is God who demonstrates his allegiance to us as a whole, as the Jewish people. And therefore he made the declaration, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. God on Shavuos addresses the Jewish people as a whole and makes a condition, unconditional, eternal, irrevocable commitment to Am Yisrael, to the Jewish people. On Rosh Hashanah, which we will celebrate in a couple of weeks, and please turn to Footnote, uh, uh, source number six from the High Holiday Liturgy, the most famous prayer, the Unetane Tokev, 
all mankind will pass before you like a flock of sheep, like a shepherd pasturing his flock, making sheep pass under his staff. So shall you cause to pass, count, calculate, and consider the soul of all the living. On Rosh Hashanah, we are all judged as individuals, just as the shepherd counts each sheep in his flock, separately and individually. So too on Rosh Hashanah, God counts, God examines the deeds of every single soul as an individual. And as an individual, it's up to you and me to determine whether we will be part of the destiny of the Jewish people. There is no guarantee. And look at source number eight from the book Hayom Yom, which was authored by the Rebbe of Blessed Memory in 1943 with quotes from his predecessor, his father-in-law, called the Friedrich of the previous Rebbe from the 18th of Sivan. This is the actual time of the footsteps of Mashiach, the final age prior to Mashiach's advent. It is therefore imperative for every Jew to seek his fellow's welfare, whether old or young, to inspire the other to return so that he will not fall out, God forbid, of the community of Israel who will shortly be privileged with God's help to experience complete redemption. Let me repeat those lines. So that he will not fall out, God forbid, of the community of Israel. There is, and there's no need to elaborate on the danger, not just the danger, but the reality of how many Jews fall out and who, God forbid, may not be part of the glorious future of the Jewish people. So how do we, how do we address that? You know, they say that, uh, and I don't mean to brag, but you read this and you hear this, that Chabad is the most important Jewish organization, largest in the world today. But think about it. Visit any Jewish community where Chabad is, and most likely, more often than not, it's not the biggest institution in town. In fact, institutionally, very often, it's the smallest around the globe. And yet, it is recognized for its critical, essential role. And I think perhaps the reason why is, whereas other institutions, federations, and I don't mean to be critical, focus on saving Judaism, 
Chabad and other organizations like it are focused on saving Jews. We don't need to save Judaism. That's God's peckle. That's God's issue, and that is God's guarantee that Judaism will always exist. And therefore, the focus on saving Judaism perhaps is somewhat misplaced, and that the focus needs to be on saving Jews, one by one, just like on Rosh Hashanah, as we stand before God and pass under the rod like the sheep in the flock of the shepherd. And therefore, and you've heard stories about this last night, and you will hear it over at the, here at the retreat and elsewhere, the resources, the time and energy that will be expended for one Jew. Because that is our mandate. That is the role that we have to play, that God has trusted us with. And as the Talmud famously says, whoever saves one life, and not just physically, but spiritually too, it's as if you've saved the whole world. And saving and reaching out and strengthening an individual Jew's commitment is what we should be all about. Now, I recently read a story, some of you may have heard it. This is written by Howard Schultz. We have some people here from, anybody here from Seattle? So you probably know him as the uh, CEO of Starbucks. And he was part of a, um, a leadership mission, a lay leadership mission to Israel, and his group was introduced to the famed and venerable Rabbi Nosson Tzvi Finkel of blessed memory, who was the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the Mirror Yeshiva, a very famous Lithuanian Yeshiva that is now headquartered in Jerusalem in Israel. And in the conversation, the rabbi asked these lay leaders, tell me, what is the most important lesson from the Holocaust? And one by one, they gave, I guess, what you and I would consider the typical answers. One answered, never again. We shall never forget, never to be a victim or a bystander. He said, no, 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 no. That is not the most important lesson from the Holocaust. And he described to them in detail how Jews were transported to the concentration camps. And after days packed into the carts, and when they finally made it to the so-called destination, at the concentration camp, he said what happened was that for those who were sent to the barracks and not to immediate death, 
The system of the Nazis was that they gave one blanket for every six individuals. One blanket. And he said, every individual that received that blanket had a challenge. And that challenge was, and you can imagine, especially in the wintertime, if they arrived at the concentration camp, whether to keep that blanket for himself or herself, or whether to spread it and to share it with five other inmates. And he said, that is the lesson of the Holocaust. That is the challenge. The human spirit, the power of an individual in trying the most trying and challenging of circumstances, whether he or she could preserve human dignity and human pride and reach out and provide warmth for one, two, three, four, at most five other people. And he concluded the rabbi by encouraging and challenging these lay leaders. When you go back to the United States, spread that blanket of yours that it should reach five more people. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what he had in mind. But my interpretation is that here he was leading, meeting with business leaders, people capable of building institutions. And yet he reminded them that it ain't the buildings. It's the blanket. It's providing warmth. And in the Holocaust, it meant physical warmth. And today, it means, for most of us, spiritual warmth. To one other person, to one other individual, or to a family, a group of people. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, famously proclaimed that a person can live for 60 or 70 years and his or her mission is to do one single favor for one other individual. That defines your life. If you will, this proverbial blanket to share it with one other individual and the rest is gravy. And that's what needs to be our focus. And that is why, again, was mentioned last night, the idea of pouring resources into reaching out to an individual that they light the Shabbat candles or they put on tefillin one time. It's the power of mitzvah, goreret mitzvah, that one mitzvah begets and inspires another mitzvah. You know, they say this is true, not only 
in the religious and spiritual sense. But that very famous book that was written a few years ago, The Tipping Point, which I'm sure many of you have read, which describes how one small act, I think one of the features in that book is about the company Hush Puppies and how it became an international success. And it's always, if you think about it, a small gesture, a small act that has the power, the domino effect. And sometimes when we think that our focus should be on the Jewish people. And I remember once, my rabbi of blessed memory, Rabbi Yitzhak Groner, who was the head of the, of the Chabad community in Melbourne, Australia, and he was once visiting an, a, uh, another community that had just built this magnificent edifice. And they asked him, well, what do you think? And he said, you have nice bricks. That's an important message. Not to belittle the importance of building institutions. We try to do that in Atlanta too. But you can't lose sight of the individual. And I'll conclude with a personal story. I remember when we first came out, my wife and I was here on, to Atlanta uh, approximately 30 years ago, and it was our second year in Atlanta. And it was Purim. And we decided that we're going to reach as many people as we can with Mishloach Manot, with the food gifts of Purim. And in Atlanta, it's very spread out. When somebody tells you, I live around the corner, they live five exits up the highway. And so it's only our second year, but we put a list together of people that we knew. And I was determined that I was going to reach as many people as possible, travel, drive as far as I could that day to deliver Mishloach Manot. And it was towards the end of the day, and I'd been out all day delivering my Mishloach Manot. And it was time for the Sudat Purim, for the Purim meal before the end of the day. And I'm, dry, and I'm pulling in to our driveway when I notice my next door neighbor, who is Jewish, walking to the mailbox. And I realized, in my great effort to reach as many people as possible, so that I could advertise that Chabad had delivered scores or hundreds or how many people it was to you know, impress myself and whoever else. I had forgotten the individual closest to me, my next door neighbor. And my friends, that's the power of Judaism. And that's what God has entrusted you and me with with the responsibility to offer that blanket to the Jew who is closest to you, who is next door to you, who may be a business associate, who may be a friend, to offer whether it's a physical 
or a spiritual blanket. Do not undermine, do not underestimate the power of that. Don't worry about Am Yisrael. That's his problem. Worry about Yisrael. We have to worry about a fellow Jew. And this applies not only to our fellow Jew, but to ourselves also. It really is the small things, the individual mitzvah that we do, that assures and that guarantees that our children will continue our heritage and legacy. It has been proven that JCCs and other synagogue big institutions just investing in building institutions in itself is not going to help for your children to continue and to be part of our future. You can write out a check and you can serve on this board and then on that board. And it is not going to have the desired effect on our children. It is the mitzvah that we do. The simple individual, that's okay, indivi that means my time is up. Individual mitzvah that we perform that is most crucial. I know that song. <laughs> that is most crucial. And that is the role that has been entrusted to us in order to ensure the perpetuation of Am Yisrael so that we and our children and our children's children will be a part of the glorious future of Am Yisrael Chai. Thank you.